the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. to change your attitude, change your life's conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. In a culture that equates alcohol with enjoyment and social acceptance, when a person can no longer drink, he or she may feel isolated or like they're living a joyless life. According to today's guest, Veronica Valley, sobriety can be a path filled with fun, belonging, relaxation, and romance. Veronica is a former psychotherapist who now works as a sobriety coach, helping people get sober and stay sober by increasing their self-worth, energy, and participation in life. She's the author of the book, Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. Welcome, Veronica. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Veronica, I'd like to begin by talking a little bit about your story. How did you get started on the path of helping people get and stay sober? Uh, Well, it was really part of my own journey. I had um, a real battle with alcohol in my early 20s, Uh, my drinking was really, I've never, I I had a very um, difficult relationship with alcohol from when I first drank as a teenager, and that just sort of increased. Um, I, on the outside, kind of looked like everything was okay. You know, I'd never been fired from a job or had a DUI or anything like that. But inside, I, um, how I felt about myself, I felt very uncomfortable in my own skin. And alcohol really uh, took away all of those very uncomfortable feelings that I didn't know how to deal with. So uh, my life wasn't really going anywhere. I mean, it wasn't awful, but it was. I was very stuck, and I just used alcohol to cope with lots of different things. I also didn't think that not drinking was was an option. I didn't know you could not drink alcohol um, until I got to 27, where I was introduced to somebody who who showed me that you know I could get sober, and not only could I get sober, that actually life is pretty amazing um, if I eliminated alcohol. I just couldn't see at the time. That alcohol was the problem. I thought it was, I thought it was a benefit. You know, I thought that it, you know, helped me relax. I thought it helped me cope. I thought it helped me have fun, but I, I couldn't see that actually it was the problem. And when I got rid of alcohol, my life began to improve. And and from there, I went and, and trained as a therapist and, and and have worked in this area for over twenty years. Well, you just said in in describing your story that you hadn't been fired from a job and you didn't have a DUI. Mm. And so many people that I know that have some problems managing their alcohol say those things as well. They're in some type of a denial. They're like, Mm -hmm. well, my life isn't falling apart. I'm working, you know, so there isn't a problem. So how then can someone who may be abusing alcohol see that it is impacting their life in a negative way? That's a really good question because I, I think we all have quite a distorted view of what a problem is and what a problem isn't. And we tend to think, well, I have a car and a job and a college degree. I, you know, I can't have a problem. So what I do is a very simple cost-benefit analysis. And we look at the cost of alcohol. So we would literally start with how much we spend financially on alcohol. Um, and it's not just what we spend on alcohol itself. It's the associated cost. So it's takeout food and taxis and and maybe a lost opportunity and all the hidden costs like the impact on our health because alcohol is highly toxic. It's a carcinogen. 
So we, we add up that. And then we also look at time because time is a big one. We can always get money back, but time we can't get back. So we look at how much time we spend thinking about drinking, thinking about not drinking, drinking and recovering from drinking. That was a big one for me. Recovering from drinking was a, took up much more time than the actual drinking. Um, you know, did it take time away from your kids? Did it take time away from the things that you really, you know, did you not go on a bike ride on a Sunday morning that you usually love to do because you just felt too hungover and tired? So we look at the time your relationship with alcohol takes up. And that's quite a big one for people. And then we look at the, the costs that really matter. How does it impact your relationships with your family, with your loved ones? Have you had any situations where you've been you know, intoxicated and said things that you've regretted and now you feel uncomfortable around those people? Do we look at how it impacts your relationships? We look at how alcohol impacts our dignity, our integrity, and our purpose which all feel, um, when we look more closely, we see that alcohol has become much more of the main event in our lives and it's moved us away from who we really are. So when I look at that with clients, just look at the, the what does alcohol cost you? It's a simple question. Are you getting a good return on your investment? Is alcohol bringing the things that it promises. And that's when people begin to have a shift in perception because the perception is alcohol is the best way to have fun, excitement, belonging, connection, to relax and to reward myself. But then if we look at the cost of that, it's kind of like, actually, am I really having as much fun as what I think I am? Because this is a pretty high cost. So you can have a cost that's unacceptable and, and still on the outside, everything looks like it's, you know, everything looks like it's fine. And, and that's the more common story uh, than, than people who are perhaps, you know, reach rock bottom and are homeless and all that kind of stuff, which is what we tend to think an alcohol problem looks like. My client group is much more in, in the middle, just as I described. Is it a good idea for any one of us to make this type of assessment? You know, I think that we all know, right, that everything, I mean, I drink Diet Coke. I don't drink it every day, but I know that it's not, you know, it, it doesn't it, it doesn't bring anything. So we all, I think all of us can benefit from looking at the stuff that we do perhaps mindlessly without thinking, stuff that's a habit, and just kind of look at the cost of that. It is all about balance, for sure, certainly with like food and all of that kind of stuff. But really, my mission is around alcohol. We have culturally very ingrained beliefs that if we don't drink alcohol, we won't be able to have fun, belonging, connection. How do we relax, reward ourselves? And that is a complete myth. I, I got sober when I was 27. And I, um, you know, I thought that was over. I thought I'd never go out and and within a year i was doing all the things i i you know i've been to nightclubs i've been to uh, uh concerts and festivals and weddings and vacations and i've done them all without alcohol and they have all been much better experiences and and i think that we don't have that perception that we can actually enjoy ourselves and have a really we can have fun and have a fulfilling life without alcohol what do you believe are some of the biggest misconceptions people have about alcohol and sobriety I think the two biggest misconceptions we have that were given to us that we didn't question are alcohol equals fun and sober equals boring. And, and that's the struggle that I see everybody who comes in my groups or my subscription group, I see them struggle with, they really can see that alcohol isn't helping. They, can, they, they, don't, they don't like how it makes them feel. They regret drinking. They, um, all of those things, but it's so deeply ingrained that if they stop drinking, they're never going to have fun again. So my work is really to challenge deeply ingrained belief systems that were given to us by our culture, the media, and our peer group. And I remember going out in England in the late 80s and, and being drunk and, and like passing out and being covered in my own vomit. And I remember wake coming round and thinking, this like this isn't fun, this isn't right. But everyone around me said, Oh my gosh, that was such a wild night. You are so crazy. That was so fun. 
and and I kind of absorbed that and was like, okay. So, and I think that um, we we have a really, you know, our perception is really skewed, and you know, especially the whole thing about sobriety being boring. That's the you know, anyone who's been sober a while. Sober people love to party. We love to dance. We love to go out. We love to socialize. And it's quite incredible the first time you do that and and you begin to, you kind of leave and you're like, wow, I had an amazing time and I didn't drink. And it, it, it takes a little while for our brain to kind of catch up with that because these um, misconceptions are very deeply ingrained. When a person gets sober, we always hear about the importance of taking it one day at a time, that it can be a challenge to mm. maintain that sobriety. What are the five pillars of sustainable sobriety? You know, um, I, I will say that that's true only in the beginning. It's really important to emphasize that um, early sobriety, which is the first few months, maybe the first year, um, you need lots of support. But it's not like that long term. The, the, the first few months are different because it's such a big habit change. But after the first year or so, it, it's very different. You know, we, I don't think about not drinking. I just live my life. Um so it, it, it can feel like one to time at the beginning, but it's not like that long term. So the five pillars of sobriety are really personal development tools. So instead of focusing on alcohol and not drinking, what we focus on is the five pillars of the personal development tools that hold up our sobriety. So those are movement, connection, balance, process, and growth. And I'll very quickly break those down. Movement is simply about exercise. Uh, making sure that we prior, prioritize movement in our lives because it's the research is overwhelmingly shows it's the best way to take care of our mental health. When we've been drinking, we've really alcohol is a central nervous system depressant, so it, it it really affects our moods. We'll probably feel low. So we need to move our bodies to to raise our serotonin levels back up again. But it's also about being uh, purposeful about what we move towards in our life and what we move away from. Instead of kind of maybe drifting and going with the flow, it's about where, you know, what do I want my life to be about, being purposeful about the direction we go in. Um, connection is that we have to have um, meaningful connection in our lives. It, uh, it's life-sustaining, like air and water have to have meaningful connection, which is people who know our souls. Um, it, when you have an alcohol problem, it can feel very, very, very lonely. Even if you're surrounded by people, you can feel disconnected from them and disconnected from yourself. So um, connection is about reconnecting with who you really are and and having meaningful connection with other people. And we need that through all stages of our life. Balance is about balancing our needs. As our circumstances change, how we meet our needs change. So the best example of that is the pandemic when it started. Our circumstances changed dramatically, but we still had need for connection and exercise and all these different things. And we had to be creative about how we met those needs. And it doesn't change, you know, our circumstances will always change, but we have all these different needs for, you know, spiritual needs, health needs, work needs, career needs, all of these different things that we have to balance and think in these changed circumstances. Process is about understanding how um, our past has affected us. Our past shows up in our present. It shows up in our behavior. So to really understand ourselves, it's why do I feel this way? Why do I have this response? Why do I have this pattern in romantic relationships? It's really about revealing ourselves to ourselves, knowing ourselves on a much deeper level. And growth is, um, we are all being called to grow, Johnny, you know. Uh, we are all being called uh, to grow in many different ways. And getting sober is a call to growth. It's that day that someone wakes up and, and says, I don't want to do this anymore. There's got to be a different way. Like, that's a call to growth. So it's honoring this different side of us that's calling us to grow and understanding when we grow, always going to meet fear and resistance. That's just part of growth. And it's really having the tools to navigate around that fear and resistance. What's so interesting, we're talking about sustaining sobriety, but everything that you mm. just mentioned, it, it really is wonderful advice for optimal well-being for all areas of our life. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really, thank you for saying that. That's really what the five pillars of sobriety are. I, I tell people they're personal development 
for sober people. But here's the thing. Everybody on the planet has your personal development. We all have to do these things. So um, I tailor them for people with alcohol problem, but really you're absolutely right. This is just personal development that we all have to do. It's, it's a kind of model for, for living, I guess. Because if you don't heal the inside, which is what you're asking us to do with, with these pillars, mm-hmm. you look to the outside world, whether it be alcohol, mm-hmm. drugs, you know, spending money, mm-hmm. the big house, whatever it may be, we're looking to something on the outside to heal us or numb us or to complete us in some way. That's absolutely right. We live in two worlds. We live in the internal world and the external world. And what happens is the external world is um, the checklist, what we have, how much money we have, what we look like, what other people think about us. And we get lost in the external world and we look for external to, you know, if I just had that job, if I just lost 10 pounds, if I just had that relationship. And, and we think those are the things that will lead us to feel um, happy, secure and safe. Whereas really our true home is our internal world. And it's in our, we, that's where we really have to live. So it's not what other people can me. It's what I think of myself that's, that's important. And to do the work to make sure that I'm that, that, that what matters is, is that I'm connected with myself, that it's what, you know, my opinion of myself, and that the answers are internal, not external. What do you advise we do to navigate social situations while staying sober? You know, that's really interesting because there's a lot of pressure from people to drink. You know, I want to make being alcohol-free just like being gluten-free or dairy-free. You, you know, when I used to live near, near New York, and if I, if you were, you know, I had a friend who visited who was gluten dairy-free, and it was really no problem for her to be catered to. You know, we could go out and eat, and it you know, was not an issue. Whereas if you don't drink alcohol, people just find that bizarre, and, and, and it's it because of this cultural belief that alcohol is the best way to have fun, you know, unwind, relax. So they're not hearing you say... Um, I don't drink alcohol. What they're hearing you say is I volunteer to never have fun or unwind or relax again. And they take it upon themselves to say, oh, go on, just you know, just have one. It's a Friday. Go on, it's a busy week. You know? So people really don't understand that. You know, if you're gluten-free, nobody comes up to you and says, go on, have a bread roll, just have one <laughs> bread roll. You know, right. they, they're like, oh, okay. So um, we are it, seeing a shift. More and more people are sharing their stories about going alcohol-free and I think the more we do that, it makes it more acceptable. Um, there's also a wonderful selection of um, uh, non-alcoholic spirits and wines now. I've been to events recently where I've had enjoyed a couple of non-alcoholic wines and non-alcoholic cocktails. So to anyone else, they just, you know, nobody would know if I was drinking or not. So um, I make a point whenever I go out to always ask for non-alcoholic wine. And if they say don't carry it, then at least they're kind of hearing from their customers that, that's something that they want to have. So I'm hoping more and more places will begin to carry it. So that's one of the things. Then people just don't bother you. But what I tell my clients to say is if people sort of ask you why you're not drinking or why you can't just have one, just say, you know, it really doesn't agree with me. Alcohol really doesn't agree with me. I don't have a very pleasant experience. So I'm, I'm great here with my, you know, whatever it is I'm drinking. Because once you've said that, what's anyone going to say? <laughs> once you've told them it doesn't agree with you, it's not a pleasant experience. That's, you know, and, and it's really, I, I really culturally want to shift us towards accepting that being alcohol-free is no different to being gluten-free or dairy-free. And guess what? We're not missing out on anything. The book is Soberful. Uncover a sustainable, fulfilling life free of alcohol. If you'd like to get more information about Veronica and her work, you can visit Soberful.com. Veronica, in our final moments, what's a takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with? I want pe- The biggest thing is I want people to know that um, if they are struggling with an alcohol problem, that there is help. There's lots of different forms of help. But also to know... It, it, Quitting drinking, living an alcohol-free life is amazing. You're not going to miss out on anything. In fact, you're going to gain. And you need to just give it a chance. Give it a chance. Uh, get some support. Work with some people. Join groups. Uh, give yourself a year or so to do all of the different things you can do sober and then make your decision. But I want everyone who's listening to this to know 100% that when you stop drinking, it is not a life of missing out or lack. It is just the opposite. Veronica, thank you so much for joining us. It has been such a pleasure having you on the show. 
Thank you so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path. Personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Jose Antonio Bowen, argues that education needs to be redesigned to take into account how human thinking, behaviors, and change really work. Drawing on new research, Jose explores how we can create better conditions for learning that focuses less on teachers and content and more on students and process. He is the author of the book, Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. Welcome, Jose. Thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. So, Jose, you say that it is important for educators to focus on new three R's, being relationships, resilience, and reflection. Why do you believe that this should be our priority? So, as one of your listeners will remember, the old three R's, which were content-driven or reading, writing, and arithmetic. And so, a lot has changed since then. First of all, the economy uh, and the world um, have changed and things move more quickly. We're now educating students for jobs that don't yet exist, so we're preparing them for an unknown future. But the other is that we know a whole lot more about the brain and how the brain lives in our body. How much sleep we get, um, what we eat and drink uh, affects how we think. And also we know a lot more about how we don't really think alone, that we think in groups and how humans evolve to pay attention to who is speaking um, more than what they're saying, or at least first at who is speaking. So teaching students basic content made sense for us, uh, you know, a couple of generations ago. And I think even in the last few years, uh, we realized that learning to change your mind is a lot harder than we thought and that facts alone don't really do it, that, that trust is the first step uh, in trying to have a conversation with someone. And so uh, my new three R's are relationships, resilience and reflection, and they're really more about process than just content. For the past 11 years, I've been working with the brand Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, and I created this to try to teach people the power that we have through our own thought process. And it's really been a mission of mine to get this information to our our younger generation, our children, so that they understand the power that they really have within themselves. But one of the things that I'm so afraid of, and, and I don't know if you've seen this in in the work that you've done through the universities. But do you think that because of technology and the way that we're so reliant on social media for messaging, do you think we've lost the ability for critical thinking? You know, the, the good thing about evolution is that it's slow. So I, you know, I don't think that humans have lost anything. Uh, but it is true that we evolved in a different era uh, with different sets of skills. So Basically, when you want to know how humans operate, think about what we were doing 10,000 years ago. And 10,000 years ago, uh, our survival, literally, whether we lived or died, depended on our ability to cooperate and our ability to work in a group. Uh, right? We were mostly you know, hunting for, for, for mammoths and wild carrots and that sort of thing. And so uh, the ability to say, well, OK, you're going to you know, you're going to jump out of the tree. You carry the spear. You, you, know, you do this. You do that. Um, and knowing who was in your group. And so if I think, you know, I'm not sure you should be in charge and I'm not sure you're telling me the truth. I'm just going to go off on my own and, and, and try to feed myself. Um, you probably died. You probably starved to death. And so we didn't inherit those genes. So the genes that we all have are those that say, pay attention to who is talking 
And if this person is taller or good looking or has power or is part of some group that we want to belong to, then you should probably listen to them. And that you should listen to them. That's more important even than whether you think they're telling the truth, um, that, that who they are and their position in the organization um, becomes really, really important because that was right more important. Otherwise, we starve to death. So our brains were not set up for all of this constant dopamine addiction, which is, of course, what social media was. It was designed um, to provide a dopamine hit. You know, somebody likes me. Fantastic. I feel great. Give me more. So, so that those two things, right, the dopamine and our ability to, you know, our desire to look for who is speaking and to be uh, socially adept, and by the way, especially for adolescents, right, this is, this is in, in hyperdrive, those things do interfere with our desire to think for ourselves. So we're generally confused. We, we, we think, oh, I can think for myself. I think for myself all the time and feels that way, but we're generally not. And so in a lot of ways, this book is about all the ways that we don't think for ourselves, all of the traps that we fall into, and especially as teachers, all of the traps that we fall into because we assume that we, we look at a class full of students and we think, oh, they're all thinking for themselves and I'll just provide new data or new information or we'll have a discussion, one of our favorite tricks. And in fact, what's really going on in a discussion is the same thing that was going on 10,000 years ago, that people are looking around the room and thinking, well, who are the important people to pay attention to so that I don't starve to death, right? Loneliness is another great example of this. Why do we feel lonely? Because Right. Feeling lonely is probably not good for your health, uh, because if you're isolated and the, and the tribe moves on, you might starve to death. So let me go back and join the group and, and hear out what everybody else is thinking. So social media just just exacerbates that. It does speed up the process to that faster than we can normally think about. And so, you know, we have in some ways brains that were designed for a world that didn't have this much change. Right. Didn't didn't record, we didn't need to change our minds as often or as quickly 10,000 years ago. So now jobs are changing, information is changing, the world changes faster than the evolved brains that we have can keep up. And so we look at other clues to do that. And the most important of those clues are social. So a lot of what we have to do with students and with each other, as, as you've noticed, is to point out that we have control over the process, that there are some processes that are better able to slow us down and help us think about what is the process that's needed for me to evaluate this information and not just rely on who is speaking. Because trust is a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it means that we trust sometimes the wrong people. We trust people that we have relationships with. But it also means if we slow down, we can think, well, why am I trusting this information who is speaking and why do I think it matters so much? And that's really the critical piece for both educators and for individuals, as you've pointed out. Jose, can you share with us a strategy that we can implement that would encourage independent thinking? So the most common one is the one that, that juries do, which is um, when you're having a discussion, don't start by saying, well, who thinks this and who thinks that and who's in favor, right? Start with an anonymous poll. Right. Because what happens is that when you're in a meeting, uh, you're in a group and somebody says, hey, I want pizza. And the person next door is thinking, oh, you know, I didn't want to go for pizza, but maybe everybody else wants to go to pizza. So if the first person who speaks um, agrees with you, you grow in confidence. If the first person who speaks disagrees with you, you shrink in confidence. And so an anonymous poll can show the group that, well, actually, um, we're pretty split. Now, that's probably not the most important thing to do when you're deciding where to go for dinner. Uh, but it is very important if you're trying to decide if somebody goes to prison or not, or if you're trying to make a big decision about um, whether you should have surgery um, or, or some other important matter. So, so polling is important. The other is to consider who is speaking and why. Do they have something to the gain? Are they really a trusted source? Do they have expertise about this particular issue? As you know, most of the misinformation is, is information that was, that was repeated from somebody else. It's not that the person who you're talking to invented this, um, but they're repeating something they've heard. So number one, right, think before you repost, think before you repeat. Um, do I really trust this information? Is it really important that I continue to, to, to propagate this uh, in the world? The book is Teaching Change, How to Develop Independent Thinkers Using Relationships, Resilience, and Reflection. Jose, where can our listeners go to get more information about you and your work? Well, I have a website, uh, josebowen.com. 
Uh, I have uh, other books I've written about this, uh, and there's plenty on Google, I suppose. Hopefully some of it true. (laughs) Jose, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. We'll be right back. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. This is WNYF, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. The fast pace of daily life can make it easy to forget the importance of spending time with our children. Often when asked to play, read, or do an activity together, our response is, sorry, but I don't have time. And while making time can be a challenge, research has shown that there are many benefits derived from family time together, including the development of social, emotional, cognitive, and language skills. Today's guest, Lisa Brown, helps us discover the many ways we can capture the pleasure of spending time with the children in our lives. Lisa is the author of the book, Hold the Moments, Creative Experiences in Parenting. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) So, Lisa, as I said in the introduction, many of us say to children, I don't have time, whenever they ask us to play or do some type of activity. You wrote a book, Hold the Moments, Creative Experiences in Parenting. Why was it so important for you to take on this project, and what was the message you hoped to convey? So I I started with the idea, my parents had both died, and my children didn't remember them being fun. They only remembered them kind of being frumpy, and I was thinking, ah, if I only had, like, the memory someplace, you know, in a book, and I could show them, they would remember. But um, as I was working on the book, I realized parents didn't really understand, you know, didn't have ideas either, easy ideas that they could do in a pinch with just a pencil. And I thought, well, let me just write a book and make it easier for people. And they can keep a journal for the children. And then when the children are older, like in their late teens or 20s, they they really, really love having those memories for themselves, especially if those people have passed. And I think that's such a great idea, Lisa, because as you were saying, often as parents or or adults, important adults in a child's life, we tend to take on that frumpy disciplinarian who's not any fun. And and I think that this is such a great way to create memories that can last a lifetime. Yeah. And some of them are really simple. One of them um, is, is just to take a walk. But when you're going on the walk, everybody has to call out a silly walk. So everybody would have to do, let's say, toe to toe or a twirly walk or you know, just make it more fun than just we're going for a walk. And what are the benefits of spending time with our children? I listed a few, but what are some of the many things that we can add to a child's life by being together? Well, the part about it um, that was important to me was to remember um, that there's always something you can do. You can always find some plaything um Without even having materials, you can go to the store and pretend like, okay, we're going to do a search for who can find the most green things or, you know, you can make a, a game out of anything. And, and I really just wanted children, children to experience the imagination, thinking, thinking uh, about ideas, you know, that could anything could be a game and just giving them a chance to really use their brain a little bit. Um, I don't know how much they get out of that if they're just sitting in front of a screen playing the game. Someone's listening to us right now and says, this sounds like such a great idea. How does that person get started? How do we shift our mindset from, I don't have time for any of this, to it's a wonderful way to create memories? I think if they just think about when they were children, what what was their favorite thing to do and who were the favorite, what, what memories do they have that they treasured? That's the way to think about it, because those are the memories that also your, your children will remember. And uh, I I just really think you can kind of concentrate on that. All you have to do is think about what, what you loved and what did you love about it. And it could be something as simple as. And, you know, our children over the past couple of years now through the pandemic and, and everything that we've experienced as adults, our, our children have really been having a difficult time through all of this. So can doing these activities, can art, can this heal them? 
Absolutely. I, I truly believe art is therapeutic and um, that my programs are called art is therapy because I like to take you away for a couple hours and just have you not think and just enjoy the process of doing art. But I think doing any art, children don't, they're not afraid to draw something because they, they can draw. They always can draw. They get, they get a little bit upset when and they ask their parents to draw something and the parent says, I can't do it. So I just wanted that. I wanted the children to have a chance to, I've worked with children for many years and I just, I love when they're so happy when they do something that they're proud of and let's get them outside or let's play games inside that are easy to, easy to do. And in the book, I have all kinds of ideas. I have writing ideas and I have um, things that you put together. Um, one of the things that I thought would be really nice is just to interview them when they do something special at school, like a little play or and just interview them as if they're famous stars and the, and write down what they say because they, they say sometimes the funniest things and it's cute to them when they read it later and they're older. And Lisa, in addition to building confidence, can these exercises help a parent understand what a child is really feeling inside? Do children reveal things through art and play that they may not through words? Often, yes, they do. And um, I can give you an example. I had one child who was and she drew a picture of herself and she had like 25 fingers on each hand and the mother came in and she said oh my god what does that mean and I said well do you take her to get her nails done and she said yes and I said I think she really likes that (laughs) not only is it something negative you know sometimes it's something positive you'll find in their art but it's not really for you to analyze it's just to make them feel good you know um, you don't need to analyze their work but just enjoy what they're enjoying and enjoy it with them. Lisa, can you share with us one of your favorite exercises from the book? One of the exercises that my children really liked that I did, I, uh, however, I didn't have, hadn't written the book at the time, but I took a little doll um, or uh, it was a little stuffed animal that we had, and we brought him with us all day and took pictures as we, as we had pizza for dinner, and then we went to the swings and you know, they, we took them, took the little animal with us everywhere, and then we wrote a story when we got home. So I think that's, you know, it's a way to encourage them to write stories. And it's not so hard to write a story if you, you know, just have a character, start with a character. And Lisa, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like our listeners to remember from this conversation? That it's that making memories with children or making memories of any family members is, is worth more than anything you can get. The book is Hold the Moments, Creative Experiences in Parenting. If you'd like to get more information about Lisa and her work, you can visit her website, artastherapy.com, and that's with hyphens, A-R-T hyphen A-S hyphen therapy.com. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you aware that by incorporating sound therapy into your daily lives, you can actually improve your immune system? Is the music you listen to on a regular basis encouraging a healthy immune response? And did you know that research has proven that soothing sounds can shift our moods, which has a direct effect on our health? Hi, this is Roxanne D'Angelo. I am a certified Reiki master. Japanese researcher Dr. Emoto has proven over and over again through experimentation that the sounds we listen to, the words we speak, and even our own thoughts have the ability to change the molecular structure within our bodies. Water is a perfect conductor for sound, and since our bodies are made mostly of water, the sounds we hear are carried throughout our bodies to our cells, either creating a healthy or destructive response on a cellular level. Here are some suggestions for using sound for encouraging a healthy immune response. Find time each day to listen to soothing sounds and feel the relaxation settle within. Be mindful of the words you speak. Peaceful and kind words carry a high vibration, encouraging a healthy immune response. And as part of your daily practice, incorporate playing singing bowls, drumming, or any other type of instrument that brings you joy, as this will also help enhance your health. If you would like more information, you can reach me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com. your heart and soul into writing a book, you've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, 
and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life Book Club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. ways that you can heal your thyroid naturally is Dr. Emily Lipinski, a doctor of naturopathic medicine and author of the book, Healing Your Thyroid Naturally. Welcome, Dr. Lipinski. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Doctor, let's begin by talking about the scope of thyroid disorders. How prevalent are thyroid issues and who are most likely to suffer? They're becoming more and more prevalent. In fact, it's estimated that in North America now, about one in six women at some point in their life will develop some sort of thyroid dysfunction. And although thyroid disease does affect men, it's definitely more prevalent in women. So you're saying that it's becoming more and more of a problem. What are some of the major causes? Well, this is a really interesting question because a lot of people, the old way of thinking was that as uh, we age, specifically as women age, the thyroid gland, it's it's a hormone gland in the body located in the neck, that it just naturally stopped working as well. However, we know now that about 90% of the reason why people are developing hypothyroidism, slow functioning thyroid uh, function, is because of autoimmune disease. So when we're looking at the root cause of why, it's really because of this autoimmune disorder that's happening in people's bodies. And many people aren't even aware of it. Is that occurring because of our lifestyle? Yes, autoimmune disease, um, there's kind of three factors we need to look at. First, there needs to be some sort of genetic link. We can't do anything about that. Some people know they have genetics to develop autoimmune. Some people don't. Um, So if you have a father or a mother or aunt or uncle with rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or other forms of autoimmune disease, you're definitely at increased risk. Second is kind of the triggers to develop an autoimmune condition. And these can be a a Western um, diet, refined foods, lots of fats and sugars, packaged foods, um, exposure to toxins, uh, long-term use of certain medications like Advil uh, and the birth control pill can also be a trigger for autoimmune. And then the final one is something called leaky gut or interstitial um, permeability, intestinal permeability. And that is some people know they have leaky gut, some people don't. What are signs that something might be wrong? So with the thyroid gland specifically, I'd say some of the first things you want to be looking out for is that key symptom of inability to to lose weight. The thyroid gland is the master uh, gland of your metabolism. So it keeps your metabolic rate high and it also keeps your bowels moving. So having sluggish bowels, not being able to go to the bathroom as much as you want, feeling like you're gaining more and more weight despite not any big changes in diet or exercise or trying to change diet and exercise and no budge with the weight. That's one of the key symptoms. And then you also want to be looking for feeling cold all the time, um, dry hair, skin and nails, hair falling out, Um, and irritability, depression, and anxiety can also be part of thyroid disease. Anyone who gets a routine annual physical and they do blood work, there's usually a thyroid panel that's done. Is that sufficient in diagnosing the problem? That's a great question, Joan. So when we look for thyroid disease on blood work, we're looking for something called TSH. That's thyroid-stimulating hormone. That's a hormone that's produced by the pineal gland, the gland in your brain, and that should speak to your thyroid gland. I I tell my patients kind of like a whisper. It should say, keep going, you're doing a good job. When that happens, the range of TSH is around 0.5 to 2, maybe 2.5. Anything above 2.5, in my opinion, is that something might be starting to be a little bit off with your thyroid gland. The problem with that, though, is many labs 
their cutoff for TSH is around somewhere between four to six. And classic uh, thought in the medical system is that there's really nothing wrong with a thyroid gland until TSH goes to 10. So that's the first issue. A lot of women I've seen have had a TSH in the threes, fours, fives, sixes, but no one's done anything about it because they think it's not, it hasn't gotten high enough to do something about it. The second issue is that the TSH doesn't show anything about the autoimmune disorder. And again, 90% of people that have hypothyroidism are having an autoimmune condition going on in the body. And these antibodies that attack the thyroid gland can be tested in the blood, but aren't often tested in conventional medicine in North America. So these two antibodies that are primarily tested in my practice are called TPO and TGAB. And you can have those antibodies checked. You can ask your doctor to run those for you. If your doctor won't run them for you, you can find another practitioner, be it naturopathic, functional medicine doctor, another medical doctor that will run these antibodies. Because if you do have the antibodies, there's a lot that you can do to reduce those antibodies in your body and help your thyroid gland function a little bit more optimally. If it's determined that there is a problem, is medication always the the best course of treatment? And once you're on these meds, is it forever? Or is there something that we can do naturally to heal this? It really depends how long the thyroid disease um, has been at play and if you already are on medication. So that's one of the important points about looking at these antibodies. So normally we know that the antibodies become elevated in someone's blood about five years before their TSH really goes, the switches very, very high. So if you catch the antibodies early and the TSH is still within the normal range, that is where healing the thyroid naturally really shines. There's so much we can do naturally to reduce those antibodies and really, in my opinion, prevent the use of medication. If the TSH is slightly high um, and you do do things naturally, there also may be a reduced need for medication as well. If your TSH is really high and you've been dealing with thyroid disease for a very long time, natural remedies are absolutely still going to have a place. However, you may need medication. Using natural remedies and diet and lifestyle can still be powerful because it can reduce how much medication you might need. Um, and you might be able to have get away with a lower dose of medication because you're doing these other things naturally to improve thyroid function. The book is Healing Your Thyroid Naturally by Dr. Emily Lipinski. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Do you ever feel like there's no end to the problems that you face? Do your challenges seem too great to overcome? Do you ask yourself, what's the point? If you answered yes to any of these questions, welcome to the majority. Most people at one time or another feel the same way. Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. We tend to look at others and think that they have it made. They have it all figured out. What we don't realize is that those who appear to have figured it all out have the same feelings. However, they've made a conscious decision to turn their adversity into a positive experience. A wise person once said, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. We all face adversity. It's what you do with it that matters. I had the opportunity to interview baseball great Jim Abbott. Jim pitched a no-hitter with the New York Yankees, won the gold medal game at the 1988 Olympics, entered the starting rotation of the California Angels without spending one day in their minor league, and finished third in voting for the Cy Young Award. Jim was born with one hand. Jim spent much of his life with his missing hand tucked in his front pocket. Like the rest of us, he felt insecure and self-conscious. But he chose a career with a uniform that didn't have a front pocket. Even when he was standing on the pitcher's mound making history, his insecurities crept in his thoughts. But he never let those insecurities stop him. And now he serves as an inspiration to many, children especially, proving that anything in life is possible. His challenge has become a gift. Will you let your challenge become a gift? Will you look for the lessons in your adversity? If you've lost a job, try to figure out what happened. Is there anything you could have done differently? Is it time for a career change? If you're facing an illness, look for the reasons why it may have happened. Can you change your lifestyle or your diet? Can you be an inspiration to someone else? If you have relationship problems, what can you change about the way you interact with others? Is the person an emotional drain in your life? If you're in debt, can you improve on your budgeting skills or become more financially prudent? 
Adversity is guidance. Sometimes it comes into your life to tell you it's time to change, sometimes to teach you a lesson. Always remember that anything can be overcome with the right attitude. Look to others for strength and inspiration. Rather than getting bogged down with your own problems, pay attention to people who happily survive and even prosper despite all of the odds. As Jim Abbott said, when something is taken away once, it is given back twice. Look for what is given back to you. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiration and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. How much hydration is necessary for us to be perfectly healthy? And how does being pregnant affect our intake? I'm Dr. Michael Magwood, chiropractor specializing in prenatal and pediatric chiropractic care. The question is, why is water so important during pregnancy? First, dehydration affects a mom's hormones, so we want water to help create balance. Second, circulation, which is improved by hydration, can support egg health. My first tip, then, is consume 16 ounces of water first thing in the morning. And secondly, realize the value of your hydration that you're getting from your foods. Specialty foods like chia and cacti produce something in our body called gel water, which can be transmitted through our connective tissue. My final suggestion is to drink alkalized water Studies have shown that water consumed at a pH of 8.5 is the most alkalizing source of water for the body. For answers to more of your questions about water, hydration, and hydration during pregnancy, feel free to reach out to our offices in Clifton, New Jersey, and in New York City at purebalancecenter.com. joining us i hope you found the show informative at change your attitude change your life we believe that knowledge is power take what you've learned apply it and live your best life now remember the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation if you'd like more information visit our website cyacyl.com that stands for change your attitude change your life while on our site Listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.